Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Much has already been said about the legacy of John McCain, who died over the weekend at the age of 81. We're going to focus on his foreign policy and Senate career on today's show. Joining me is Jacob Weisberg, who now runs the Slate Group. He's written about John McCain for decades. Jacob wrote the foreword to David Foster Wallace's book with the incredible title, McCain's Promise, aboard the Straight Talk Express with John McCain and a whole bunch of actual reporters thinking about hope. Thanks for joining us, Jacob Weisberg. Sure thing. I wanted to first ask some about Teddy Roosevelt and John McCain, because it seems like he drew some inspiration from Roosevelt. His grandfather had an association with Roosevelt in the Navy, and there was this mindset kinship that both seemed to have. Um, what do you make of that? I think Teddy Roosevelt is someone who John McCain idealized and thought about as an exemplar of the kind of republicanism he wanted to represent both in terms of a more progressive and interventionist domestic government, but also the the walk tall and carry a big stick, the, the aggressive foreign policy posture. I think in many ways it's the antithesis of the small government conservatism that emerged out of Reaganism and in the wake of Reaganism. I was surprised to rekindle my memory on some of the things that John McCain was in the 80s. And in the 80s, John McCain was uh, someone people thought was kind of a realist in the Republican Party. Well, you have to remember the Vietnam cast a long shadow. And after, after the Vietnam War ended and after John McCain came home, neither party was very interested in foreign adventures. And, you know, we had something called the Vietnam Syndrome, which was thought to prevent any kind of foreign intervention, including ones that might have made sense. When when George H.W. Bush went to war with Iraq the first time, he said, we finally licked the Vietnam Syndrome. And uh, I think that lasted a couple of decades. But McCain was someone who as time went on, reverted to a more interventionist, more hawkish posture. He went from that position where he was the one who would often be criticizing a U.S. intervention or a suggested U.S. intervention in a place like Bosnia to being someone who was on the on the other extreme, who wanted to intervene on almost any grounds, humanitarian, national security, uh, pro-democracy. He, the joke about McCain became he never met an intervention he didn't like. So it was surprising for me to read that he did not like Reagan's decision to send troops uh, to Lebanon in 82 and was uh, against that. And that was obviously uh, something of a uh, it was a total disaster. And then he was also against uh, the U.S. intervention in Somalia, which uh, was uh, something that was done to kind of universal acclaim when it, went, when it started. Uh, that was something it was odd to be against. Well, so often these interventions are judged purely on the basis of consequences, which are unforeseeable. But give him credit for being opposed to the Lebanese deployment, which in retrospect was just very very poorly thought through, putting U.S. Marines in in harm's way where they were kind of targets and sitting ducks without really having a role for, for being in Lebanon. And afterwards, everyone agreed that was a bad idea. Somalia, of course, was a, was a more popular intervention. It didn't it didn't end in that that kind of tragedy. Um, so, using the benefit of hindsight, I guess it's easier to criticize that position. What was it about that 2000 presidential campaign 
that seem to have a lot of energy and and you remember it uh, as an interesting moment and people were excited about John McCain. What was going on there? I think John McCain took on that campaign sort of as an exercise in radical candor, or at least radical candor as as far as it ever goes in politics. He provided round-the-clock access to the press. He had that bus, which he called the Straight Talk Express, and he basically maintained a kind of running talk show where he would answer any question from any comer on that. And uh, he simply presented himself as a, as a really appealing figure who was trying to carry on a campaign in a different way. I mean, I, one thing I'll never forget is after he went to South Carolina in that campaign and defended the Confederate flag, which was flying over the state capitol in Columbia, after he lost, after it was over, he went back and apologized. And he said, in the heat of the campaign, I did something that was morally wrong. And he felt honor-bound, conscience-bound to, to address it. And that was sort of what that campaign was like. You know, you would get things from him you wouldn't see from other politicians. I remember... I didn't cover the campaign full-time, but I spent enough time on the bus to get to know him and some of the other people covering it. And at some point, David Foster Wallace showed up. He'd been sent by Rolling Stone, and the McCain people didn't have any idea who he was. I was a fan of his writing. I knew who he was, and I went to the McCain people and said, this is David Foster Wallace. you got to find him a seat on the bus, which they weren't doing. And um, they did, which is, I think, probably how I ended up writing that introduction to the, to the book all those years later, which was sadly, it was published in Rolling Stone in truncated form. Uh, the book was published in the extended form right before, uh, in fact, I think it might have even come out after David Foster Wallace killed himself. But he captured something in that piece about what was special about McCain as a candidate and what was special about that campaign. It seems like his following campaign, though, the 2008 campaign, he, he had gone through this evolution where he wasn't really about straight talk necessarily anymore. He made a lot more of those compromises, a lot more of those South Carolina compromises, it seems. it was. If you'd covered McCain in 2000, I think it was sad to see him in 2008. I wasn't covering the 2008 campaign, but I, but I saw him a little bit. And uh, he just seemed like he'd gotten old and he'd gotten tired. And you would see glimpses of the same character. You would see glimpses of candor, but he'd somehow surrounded himself with all these familiar party operatives, these sort of hacks who are around him and who are getting him to run in a much more conventional way. It worked in that he got the nomination, although he obviously lost the presidency, but it wasn't the same. And I think people who had fond memories of the 2000 campaign, at least in the press, kind of choose not to think about too, too much about 2008. There's a lot of people who wonder what would it would have been like to have a John McCain as president and what his foreign policy would have been like with this interventionist streak. You know, it doesn't seem like it would have been really beneficial. Well, after the Iraq war, I don't know that interventionism would have been possible in the way that McCain at one point would have conceived in it. I mean, the big test is Syria. Barack Obama ended up being a more realist and, and probably even more non-interventionist president than a lot of people would have anticipated. And the, the kind of hawkish left, some of which supported the Iraq war, was very disappointed that, that Obama would not intervene or organize intervention in Syria. I think McCain's instinct would have been to do that, whether he would have 
produced the political coalition necessary to do that, whether he would have produced uh, enough Republican support for that kind of intervention, we'll never know. But, you know, John McCain was not an irrational person. I mean, he was not it was not the kind of thing we worry about with Donald Trump that just, you know, without without the background or military understanding, he's, he would have done something reckless. He may have had the instinct to act and intervene. And in a campaign, of course, you talk in a more casual way about what you're going to do. I've never seen John McCain as someone reckless or irresponsible in his in his approach to the use of American military power. Uh, do you think that there are more John McCain's out there? I mean, he uh, formed a McCain Institute at uh, Arizona State University, and he's been trying to mentor people and mentor people in the Senate. Is there a larger memory of the kind of thing he advocates for? Well, when you think about the the American right and the Republican Party, what you've seen since the election in 2016 is a kind of total moral collapse um, the the un- inability to do what McCain has done at crucial junctures all through his career, which is in times to stand up to his own party, but to take positions based on conscience and and moral belief uh, and defy conventional politics. And, you know, there are a few people in the Republican Party who've shown signs of doing that, whether it's a Ben Sass from Nebraska uh, or... Lindsey Graham, who's the politician who's been closest to John McCain. But it's been drowned out by this tremendous wave of of conformity and support for Donald Trump. And uh, I'm not a conservative or Republican, but I think it's tremendously depressing and disheartening to principled conservatives and Republicans. And it's the lack of anyone to play the John McCain role after John McCain that is so painful, I think, for people on that side. Jacob Weisberg is chair and editor-in-chief at the Slate Group, and he's written about John McCain for a long time, and he wrote the foreword to David Foster Wallace's book, McCain's Promise, Aboard the Straight Talk Express, with John McCain and a whole bunch of actual reporters thinking about hope. Thanks for joining us, Jacob Weisberg. Pleasure talking to you, Jerome. After the break, what food security could mean for Puerto Rico. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our Puerto Reconstruction segment. On Mondays during hurricane season, we're talking about the recovery efforts in Puerto Rico. Today, we turn our attention to food security. Before Hurricane Maria, Maria, Puerto Rico imported 85% of its food. 
Afterwards, it's worse. The number's around 98% of food is imported in Puerto Rico. Tara Rodriguez Besosa wants to turn that number around. She's co-founder of the Puerto Rico Resilience Fund and the creator of El Departamento de la Comida, the food department restaurant in San Juan. Thanks for joining us, uh, Tara Rodriguez Besosa from Puerto Rico. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. I wonder, uh, I don't want to go over the entire agricultural history of Puerto Rico, but I think most people don't know anything about it. And uh, the little I know about it is that um, when the U.S. took over from the Spanish, I think they put a lot of sugar in. And sugar, <laughs> I, sugar I always equate with poverty. And then from there, it went to somewhere else. Yeah, um, sugar I always equate with slavery. Um but yeah, Puerto Rico has been, uh, it's going through sugar. It's been also a place where tobacco and coffee has been grown. Um, our main focus right now is to make sure that considering that we are importing more than 98% of our food, um, how can we focus on growing food for the population of Puerto Ricans and how to grow that food locally? to not depend on all the imported food that obviously gets affected every time we have a storm. But the point I'm trying to make is, is the agricultural situation in Puerto Rico so messed up after all these decades of, I don't know, what do you want to call it, food extraction, that it um, you're really kind of starting from zero? Uh, yes, pretty much. Um, because I think that what we have been, you know, uh, working on in terms of food hasn't really been food. It's mostly been crops that are focused on being exported um, and commodity crops like sugar, coffee, etc. that don't really feed people. Um, so we are starting at zero and we're dealing with a lot of how to unlearn um, what kind of agriculture be done in Puerto Rico and start to reimagine it as a way to produce food for the people of Puerto Rico and by the people of Puerto Rico which a lot of the times doesn't really go with what has been historically grown in Puerto Rico. Now, you were into this a bit before Hurricane Maria hit. Uh, explain what was happening with you and your colleagues and what, what you were doing. Yeah, sure. So in 2010, uh, I co-founded this project called El Departamento de la Comida. In English, it's the Department of Food. Uh, kind of like a sarcastic joke with the title, but also pretty serious in that sarcasm because nobody was focusing on the quality of food that was reaching our tables at home. And we started out as a very small multi-farmer CSA focused on supporting small and extra small farms that could not really connect to consumers in an easy way. Um, they were mostly selling at farmer's markets. And so we just wanted to basically support the other uh, part of their sales and try and guarantee that everything that they produced would be, you know, ending up in hands of other people, consumers. So long story short, in 2010, we started as a multi-farmer CSA and little by little, the model started evolving. Then we started uh, cooking the food, which opened up Puerto Rico's only local sustainable restaurant um, that we did for a few years. And we started doing programming, uh, not-for-profit classes, workshops, both with producers and with consumers to kind of also blur what that relationship would be. So eventually we would get farmers that were our clients and we would get clients that became farmers and just starting what you know would be a sustainable food community. 
Uh, for the past few years, we had been focusing a lot on a restaurant per se. And that got pretty much flooded <laughs> um, with Hurricane Maria. So when Hurricane Maria and Irma came through, we realized that our mission needed to evolve a little bit in the way we were going to carry it fo uh, forth. Um, it didn't make sense to work as a restaurant model. Um, it made more sense in that moment to focus on getting our farmers back on their feet and supporting in different ways that would basically, you know, get them back on their feet, but this time around in more resilient ways. So what, what, how, did that, how does that evolve? It sounded like you really enlisted a lot of support from the U.S. and other places and people came down and helped you and brought seeds and really did stuff. Yeah. So the day after the hurricane, Irene Vilar, she is a Puerto Rican uh, from the diaspora living in Colorado. She has a nonprofit organization called Americas for Conservation of the Arts. She called me and she basically called it and said, I am very afraid that this hurricane is going to bring more than just a natural disaster. And she was really worried about funding and, you know, support and help uh, after the hurricane. And she decided that she wanted to start a fund and she wanted El Departamento de la Comida and myself who live here are on the ground to really make sure that the funds that we got would make it to the people that actually needed it. So we started the Resilience Fund and it's a 24 month campaign with a very ambitious but very collaborative goal of impacting 200 food projects. Um, and we focus on five different areas. Uh, that's reforestation, seeds and farm work, community wellness, rainwater collection systems, and renewable energy. And the whole idea is to more than just think of this as, you know, relief or aid. How can we take this moment where all eyes are on Puerto Rico and start to bring up subjects and basically work that a lot of people like myself have been doing for decades um, that has to do with more resilient, more locally focused food systems? So we go every week uh, to a different farm and we do what we call a solidarity brigade, which may, means that volunteers from outside Puerto Rico, inside Puerto Rico, get on our Scooby-Doo looking bus um, and we provide all the camping gear, all the tools necessary to do effective work and also stay there on the farm for a few days because more than just doing you know, volunteer work and getting our hands dirty and, you know, supporting in that way, we're also trying to create more long lasting relationships between farmers, Puerto Rico, out of Puerto Rico, and just people that want to be involved for the long run. I'm talking with Tara Rodriguez-Besosa, co-founder of the Puerto Rican Resilience Fund, and we're talking about creating a food-secure and a secure Puerto Rico. Coming up in a few moments, we'll be talking about the pangolin. You may never have heard of it, but it is the world's most trafficked animal, and we'll talk about some efforts to help save it. Uh, you know, all the things you were talking about there, Tara, were so uh, sounded so right. Uh, you know, resilience, uh, renewable energy— uh, it, it, I imagine you're getting a lot of attention and you're kind of, uh, I, I would hope, uh, focusing people's minds on, on the stuff that is really going to work. It, how, how's your support been? 
Uh, it's been amazing. Uh, just like Puerto Rico, there are a lot of communities around the United States that are going through similar issues. If you look at what happened in New Orleans after Katrina, if you look at what happened in Texas after Harvey, if you look at cities like Detroit, you know, and I could go on, the list is pretty long. There has been a lot of just um, disasters that are not only the hurricane itself, right? But how some people take advantage of these moments. I mean, we've all heard about disaster capitalism, and we all know that right now hurricanes, it, similar to what you were mentioning earlier, they follow the same route uh, that slaves used to follow as well. Uh, you know, the winds and the tides are pretty much the same. And so it's really important to understand that frontline communities, uh, people of color are organizing and we're getting together. Today is Puerto Rico, tomorrow somewhere else. So the support has been really, really amazing. And it's taken even, you know, the Puerto Rico example to a whole other level of creating solidarity bonds with other communities. So I'm really, really happy to be a part of this. And this is for the long run. So, yeah. What do you? What will it take to really change things in Puerto Rico the way you want to see them change? Because when I, I think, uh, you know, I hear statistics about the most WalMarts per square inch or something in Puerto Rico and things of that nature, people are probably getting their food not from um, the places you're reviving, but um, all sorts of places that seem to have an in. Uh, for me, it all runs down to we are a colony of the United States and we have no control over a lot of things that happen here. And my number one message is for everybody that lives in the United States that can vote for president, that has access to Congress people, please understand that we're in a very dire situation and that relationship needs to change. I don't necessarily have the answers as to how and what is best for every single part of this relationship. But I definitely think that we need to decolonize Puerto Rico um, because right now we're living on an archipelago of islands that really has its own government that has no voice. Um, we're dealing with a fiscal control board and only voters in the United States have access to Congress and the people that can actually change this relationship. So that's the most important thing for me. And I think that as soon as we start to understand the effect of that on our food systems locally, um, we can start to move forward because uh, there is a lot of work happening on the grassroots. Now we need a lot of people that work in government and public policy to really get on board. Because at the end of the day, we do need to feed people in Puerto Rico. And it's obviously not a sustainable relationship uh, right now. Does food cost more in Puerto Rico than it does in the U.S. and then the rest of the U.S.? It could cost more. Um, it's completely dependent because it's being imported on the price of oil. Um, so definitely it goes through a minimum of five different, you know, distributors. Uh, it takes about two weeks to get here. And that means it's not fresh anymore. So it's not only about the monetary cost, it's about all the hidden costs. We don't know who grows it. We don't know if they got paid fairly. It's getting you know, on a truck, on a ship. It's getting into port in Puerto Rico, then into a supermarket. So it ends up being really low quality food at a high price. And our minimum wage is less than $8 an hour. So it becomes, even though it could seem like it's the same as in the rest of the United States, which it's really not, we can't afford it. 
Um, so it is very expensive to eat here. Um, that's one reason why I push people to get more involved within food in Puerto Rico, because it could definitely affect you on a personal level. You know, the more you get involved, the better it is for you and your own pockets. And the obesity levels in Puerto Rico are high? Oh, they're probably one of the highest in the United States, diabetes as well. Um, a lot of food and diet-related illnesses, just consider us uh, number one or number two on the list of United States. So all of this is related, right? And I'd say right now, you know, we all know that agriculture is uh, the number one contaminant of water, and that also applies to Puerto Rico and its reefs. So a lot of people, I think, after the hurricane have realized all the connections between our food, our ecosystems, our water, our oceans, um, the contamination that happens. The hurricane basically just blew over and unveiled all of these issues. And more people now are understanding that relationship between farming, food, health, even local economies, and even just political power. If you could uh, map out a successful five-year plan for the Puerto Rico Resilience Fund, I mean, I know it's only a couple-year project, but what, what, what would that future look like? It looks like uh, reimagining what food means to Puerto Ricans and who's going to farm it, who's going to own the land. And for me, it's always been a very simple vision of inverting the idea of a farm being hundreds and hundreds of acres owned by just one person who has employees and making it into a network of small and extra small food projects. Some of them are urban projects. Some of them are suburban. Some of them are rural. Puerto Rico always has a mixture. We're a very small series of islands. So we need to grow food in a very small scale. And how can we support that small scale of farmers right now? instead of continuing to use an obsolete model where you need to have a lot of land and just grow growing. So imagine just a bunch of small, small uh, and medium-sized farms growing a variety of different crops, supporting forests and pollinators, working with you know also what we call healing the land because right now Puerto Rico has a lot of contamination in its soils and bodies of water. We're talking with Tara Rodriguez-Besosa, and we've been talking about her Puerto Rico Resilience Fund. And if you want more information about the Puerto Rico Resilience Fund, you can check it out online. They've got a terrific webpage. Tara Rodriguez-Besosa, she's been featured in Vogue magazine, lots of other places. Uh, great for, to have her and talk about the Puerto Rico Resilience Fund. Uh, thanks very much, Tara, for joining us. Yes, thank you. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the pangolin. You may never have heard of it, but it is the most trafficked animal in the world. We'll be talking about an effort to save it. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WDEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 
The pangolin is the world's most trafficked animal. All eight varieties of pangolin are now threatened with extinction. Two are critically endangered. Fortunately, people are doing something about it. The first international symposium on pangolin care and conservation is taking place at the Brookfield Zoo. Bill Ziegler is here. He's Senior Vice President of Animal Programs at the Brookfield Zoo. And nice to see you again, Bill. No, nice to see you. And with us on the line is Kenneth Kammerer. He's a curator of mammals for the Pittsburgh Zoo and the PPG Aquarium. Thanks for joining us, Kenneth. I'm glad to be here. You know, people sometimes uh, when they hear about the pangolin, they don't know what it is. And it's called the most trafficked animal you've never heard about and things like that. Bill, what's a pangolin for people who don't know what one is? <laughs> well, a pangolin's also called a scaly anteater. It's an insectivore. It eats ants and termites. Uh, it ranges in size from a small one being uh, about 8 pounds and probably 32 inches long, covered in scales except on the belly, to the giant pangolin, which also resides in Africa, that can weigh up to 65, 70 pounds, quite big. They're very unique, and, and you're right. I mean, most of the times when you talk to the general public and say the word pangolin, they kind of look at you and say, oh, do you mean penguin? <laughs> and so we have to correct them and say, no, it's actually an animal and uh, you know, it's an anteater, and it's one of the scaled mammals that are out there that are just uh, very unusual and uh, actually very cute, too, when you finally see one. Um, Kenneth, I heard David Attenborough say that it's one of the most endearing animals he has ever met. Is that accurate, that they're just kind of nice? I mean, they don't seem to have any... Uh, way to hurt you, and they curl up into a little ball when they're scared. Right. I mean, if you think of a you know a pine cone with a nose, uh, <laughs> that's kind of what you're looking at, a pine cone with a nose and a tail. Uh, there are people that become very enthralled uh, with these and have become uh, big fans, but they are very cute, and they're totally inoffensive. Their defense is to curl up in a ball and just expose their scales to predators like lions or tigers. And they do quite well. But unfortunately, that doesn't do anything against a man who simply just picks them up and puts them in a sack. And that's what's hurting them in the modern modern era. What are the pangolins wanted for? What's important about them to people who are hunting them all over Asia? Well, they've been thought to have uh, medicinal purposes. If you're familiar with uh, rhino horn, a lot of the age of culture believes that you can grind these things up and put them in water or put them in things, and they may cure insomnia. They can cure migraine. I even read once where rhino water could cure insanity. Um, and the penguins, unfortunately, in the same role. The scales are believed to be able to cure all kinds of ills. And, of course, the scale is nothing more than keratin, like your fingernail, which is what the rhino horn's made of. And it really has absolutely no capability to cure anything. But because the cultures have thought this and have utilized pangolins for hundreds of years, that it's difficult to change that mindset. That's one of the things we're going to be talking about is what can we do as institutions to begin to change that culture of demand? And uh, unfortunately, something we need to do relatively quick because of the pressure on the pangolins. It takes a generation, sometimes two generations, to change culture. And the question is, does the pangolin have that long? I was reading about different uh, seizures of pangolin scales, and there was one in Vietnam where they seized 1.4 tons of pangolin scales 
It was a cargo from Sierra Leone, and uh, that's a staggering amount. When you that's three thousand animals, or you know who knows how much. There's just a lot of market there that when you're getting into the tons, it's ridiculous. Yeah, the pangolin has an average of about nine hundred scales on its body, uh, and if you were to take all those scales off an adult pangolin and put them together, uh, they might weigh somewhere near half a pound. And so when you talk about you know, confiscations in the metric tons, you can begin to get an idea of how many pangolins it took to gather those scales up. And because it came out of Sierra Leone doesn't mean that that's where the animals came from. They're hunted all over, especially in in West Central Africa. And, you know, usually you get one or two like brokers that are in one country that has feelers out in other countries where they're buying these animals from the villagers and the farmers that actually get out in the wild and they come across them and they get offered an amount of money that goes way beyond their normal income. And they gather them up to central locations and then they try and ship them out. They sometimes hide them in all kinds of things to try and get them in illegally. And Kenneth, can you describe how the market's gone? It sounds like they've been practically hunted out of Asia and now they're moving into Africa to hunt them. Yeah, it's primarily the Asian uh, markets in particularly uh, Vietnam and China that are trying to bring these animals in. And the four species that are in Asia are on the brink of extinction. Uh, Their populations have been so devastated. So consequently, they are now moving into Africa and going into any country that has pangolins and offering to villagers a small sum to bring in any kind of pangolins that they can to, uh, as Bill said, these brokers. Uh, They estimate in Africa, there's a recent scientific paper that estimated that there's an average of about 45 pangolins per hour that are being poached illegally. Wow. We're talking about the pangolin, the world's most trafficked animal, with Kenneth Kammerer. He's a curator for mammals with the Pittsburgh Zoo and Bill Ziegler from the Brookfield Zoo. The Brookfield Zoo is having the first international symposium on pangolin care and conservation. What is going to happen at the symposium? You've got a group together now, and you're coming together for the first time. What do you want to do? Well, Ken and the Pittsburgh Zoo and five other institutions in Brookfield, uh, as we said, got together to form this consortium. And we realized right away that there wasn't a lot of sharing of information and there wasn't a strong holistic approach to conservation that incorporated not just the science and biology of the animal, but the public education and awareness and the cultural demands and dealing with that sort of thing. And these groups that did these various disciplines weren't necessarily all communicating together. So what we wanted to do was bring them together, bring field biologists, bring academics, uh, bring the zoological profession together to say, how can we collaborate together and what information do we need to share in order to start that process? And then hopefully this symposium is that first step to bring them all together to talk about not only what goes on in the wild conservationally, but how do we improve the care and welfare of pangolins that we maintain in our collections. I was reading that it was hard to maintain a pangolin in captivity. The people didn't know what to do. Very hard. And Ken can speak to this too. Everything that we're doing and have done since we acquired our pangolins in 2016, is all new. We learn every day. 
the right temperatures, the right humidity. Well, you know, part of the process was creating a whole brand new diet because prior to this, most insectivores got what I called a gruel. It was a combination of processed food and other things, and it was sort of a very thick porridge kind of a thing. So we've changed the diet because uh, pangolins had a very poor history of surviving under professional care. And uh, we needed to change that. And so researching the diet, researching the needs of the species, uh, creating a new diet for that care, these are all new things that are going on right now. Ken can address a lot of that and the things that they're doing genetically, too. Ken, well, you're presenting a paper on genetics at the consortium? I'm presenting a paper with one of our collaborators from Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, and Dr. Jan Yaneshka is leading the genetics research. This is amazing in that we have a population of animals that we brought in from the African country of Togo, and we know the GPS location of every single animal. And in addition, we can now, through DNA analysis, differentiate each individual and determine whether they are related to each other. And that's very important as we put together breeding programs, for one, in that we want to be able to breed animals that are least related to each other. And we will now understand exactly not only every individual, but where they came from in the country. And that's almost unprecedented in uh, zoo populations, having that kind of information. But in addition, Dr. Yaneshka and others that will be working with us Uh, We'll be looking at the genome of the African white-bellied pangolin. And with that knowledge, we'll be able to look at certain disease characteristics that they might carry. Uh, We'll be able to look at differentiation of different types of genotypes. The information that we're getting and the collaboration, not only amongst our institutions, but with a number of different universities, is almost unprecedented for having a population like this. Bill, you mentioned you just got your pangolins in 2016, and you have 13. How do you get pangolins if they're an endangered species, and uh, how do you you know, breed them if you're going to breed them? Well, when we acquired the pangolins for the consortium, they weren't an endangered species at the time. The law that made them uh, CITES-1, or highly uh, protected species, occurred in January of seventeen. And so they were still what was called a CITES-2, which is a species that can still be exported at the time. And we knew that things were going, as I'd mentioned earlier, we knew things were going so badly for pangolin, and yet we knew so little about the species, its reproductive physiology, how they vocalize or socialize in the wild. When do they come to gain? What's the breeding season for these animals? Or how much space do they really need in the wild to survive? that we looked at and said, you know, we have to bring them in now to find these answers out so that we can provide that to uh, researchers in the field. Uh, So they weren't an endangered species when we brought them in, but it takes permitting. We had to get the cooperation of the Togonese government to get the proper export permits. We actually uh, had an individual that was over there and spent about three months over there The animals were acclimated there before they were ever shipped. They were acclimated onto a new diet. Uh, We checked them for parasites. And we also looked at them as how they were responding to people. Uh, Those animals that weren't acclimating well, they were taken out and released back into the areas they were found in 
just to protect the species as a whole. We didn't want to take animals that, you know, would not make it. So we were very careful about how we brought them in, making sure that uh, everything was permitted properly, that the animals acclimated properly. Uh, because we'd heard all kinds of terrifying stories about importations in the past where, uh, you know, 100% of the animals were lost. And uh, we brought our first group in for the consortium in April of 2016. We didn't lose an animal during that period, which, again, as Ken has talked about before, we've done some real unprecedented things here with this species. Uh, we bucked the system. But we did the right kind of homework to do that. That's what zoos and zoological parks do is do their homework, uh, you know, the care and welfare of the animals, the most important thing that we do. So we just don't run out and grab an animal from the wild and bring it in. There are a lot of thought and planning that goes behind that. And do you get uh, babies out of this? Have you seen Oh, yeah, babies? absolutely. We've had 12 births since then. We just had two births within the last two weeks wow. at Brookfield. And the unique thing about those uh, is they were births that were the result of breeding at our facilities, whereas the first births that we had were from pregnant females that came in during the importation and had their babies. So we've had a lot of success so far. In fact, one of the things we just did was we finalized the gestation period. Now, here's something that's rather common knowledge when you manage an animal. How long does a pregnancy <laughs> yeah. last? With pangolins, nobody, nobody knew, knew that. <laughs> Now we know it's eight months. Uh, we were able to know the date of inception. Uh, we were taking measurements from the pregnant females that came in because we trained them how to do ultrasounds so we wouldn't have to mobilize them. So we followed the development of the fetus and its size, and we did that with the animals that were bred here at Brookfield Zoo. And it's a tremendous amount of information that we've been able to glean from that. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about the pangolin, the world's most trafficked animal, with Bill Ziegler, Senior Vice President for Animal Programs at the Brookfield Zoo, and Kenneth Kammerer, Curator of Mammals at the Pittsburgh Zoo. And Kenneth, you've got two pangolins at the Pittsburgh Zoo. Is it a male and a female? Do you got to look somewhere else for this genetic material you were talking about earlier? Well, uh, yes, we actually have two females. So one of the things that we will be doing after the symposium is what we call a little bit of population management. And using the genetic information that we have, we can look at the animals and determine who is most related or who is least related to each other and determine who would be the best ones to match up. And at some point, we will receive a, a mail from uh, one of the other institutions. And who knows, it could be one of Brookfield's babies that grows up. But that's the benefit of working together on this, is that it's not just one institution versus another. We're all working together to grow this population and learn as much as we can. And, and everything that we learn, we can share with others in countries with conservationists and researchers to help them save the populations in those countries. Bill, you were telling me you're one of two places in the U.S. where you can see the pangolins. There's a pangolin display. You've got to invert the day to kind of flip them over because they're active at night. They're, yes, uh, they're nocturnal. Uh, we have an exhibit in what we call our Africa Habitat 2 display building. It's where our okapi are maintained and other African species. Uh, the exhibit has one male in it. 
and it is on a reverse light cycle. Obviously, we did that to have the animal be a little bit more active. But what really makes them active is during feeding time because we feed while they're on exhibit. And and the male, his name is Worm. (laughs) Uh, We didn't name him, but his name is Worm. And uh, he, he gets quite active. And it's incredible to see the response from the public. Again, first of all, probably 90% of them come in not knowing what it is. And they get fascinated when they start to watch this animal move around. And then we have our education and our interpretive message in there that specifically talks about the consortium and what we're trying to do to conserve the animal. And we also provide information about what they might be able to do. And just the fact that we make them aware that it is a problem. Uh, One thing I did mention before, in the past, and to an extent today, but not as much as it used to, um, they used to use the scales for guitar picks. Oh. And believe it or not, uh, North America, the United States, is still a probably the fourth highest user of pangolin parts. And that goes primarily to the Asian medicine shops and stuff that are throughout the United States. So getting that education out there, getting that public awareness that, you know, this is the thing that's driving the demise of the whole group of pangolin, that's what we're trying to do with that exhibit. Is it illegal to bring pangolin parts into the United States? It's a CITES-1 species. CITES, which is the Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species, is a voluntary organization that countries sign up, and they volunteer to abide by those regulations. The United States is one of those countries. So the fact that it's a CITES-1, yes, it is illegal to bring them in, whether it's a whole pangolin, a carcass of a pangolin, or a small pangolin part. The problem that's being faced is many times these scales are ground up uh, when they get to Asia and they're mixed into other things and they get shipped over here under a common name dialect that we really don't know what that is. It'll call it something like another animal and we won't have any idea because they don't put the scientific name down. So it's still coming in the country and uh, the penguins shed their scales. And they do it throughout the year, not all at once, just one or two scales often. Every scale that our pangolin shed, we collect them and we send them to Fish and Wildlife Service. And they are taking dogs. You've heard about sniffer dogs for bombs and other things and for ivory. Well, now they're training dogs to sniff out pangolin parts based upon using those scales. So hopefully at the airports, they can begin to catch some of these products that they may not otherwise recognize. And you're working on a state bill here in Illinois? Yes, we're working on a state bill to hopefully be introduced this spring that would ban the sale of any pangolin or pangolin part in the state of Illinois. Why do you need that if they're an endangered species and it's illegal already? Why would you need a bill to do that? (laughs) Well, because, as I said, there's a lot of things coming in that aren't labeled properly. And the states themselves, once they're in the country, once they get past that international border, They're kind of free to go wherever they want to go. And if we can begin to get each state to ban the sale of it, we can just hopefully enforce the enforcement of the regulations that are out there. Is there something that people can do who want to know more about the pangolin and want to help the pangolin out? Kenneth, you want to take that one? First of all, I mean, these days there is a fair amount of information on the Internet. Uh, There aren't a whole lot of books, but there are beginning to be more articles. But then I would encourage people and children to reach out to the zoos like Brookfield that have uh, pangolins. 
um, go see them if they can. And also there's a number of conservation causes, including the Pangolin Consortium or the zoos that hold them. Um, funds can go to them. We have, uh, I say we, the Pangolin Consortium, all of our zoos, have a conservation fund. And we utilize that to support projects that benefit pangolin care and conservation in the wild. And in fact, we just awarded over $40,000 this year to a number of projects, both in Africa and Asia. So those are all things that people can do to both learn about pangolins and to support their conservation. People can get more information at pangolinconsortium.org and get more information on what you can do to help the pangolin. I hope you guys have a great first-ever symposium on pangolin care and conservation taking place at the Brookfield Zoo. Thanks very much, Bill Ziegler, Senior Vice President for Animal Programs at the Brookfield Zoo, and Kenneth Kammerer, Curator of Mammals at the Pittsburgh Zoo. And thanks very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk about China, and there's actually a million people in political re-education camps in China. We're going to talk about the Uyghur community in China and the continuing crackdown on them tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julia ha- Julian Haida. Thanks to Vivian Garcia Blanco and Shazmin Hussein for production assistance, and thanks to Kyle White Sullivan for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ.